We're going to look at verses 29 and 30 this morning. I want you to read these verses with me. Paul writes, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I want to talk to you about two things, about our speech, our language, what comes out of our mouth, and about grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, all of this is couched in the context of the theme of the book, which is the church being the body of Christ, and more particularly, Christians, you and I, being members of the church, members of the body of Christ. And even more particularly than that is the idea of unity in that body, oneness. And Paul tells us in uh, the fourth chapter, verses 22 through 24, that we, we have should put off the old self and put on the new self. If I'm a Christian, I'm changed. And the change ought to be manifest in my life as I live. It ought to be demonstrable. And so uh, I'm, I'm putting off the old life, putting off the old self and the old ways and, and putting on that which is new. And he gives us some illustrations of, of how we do that, some general categories. And these general categories are certainly significant to all of us because we all understand and can relate. He's told us that we're to put off falsehood. We're to, quite simply, quit lying to ourselves, quit lying to one another, and certainly quit lying to God. We're to put off falsehood and put on truth. We're to be people who walk in the truth. People are telling ourselves the truth. People are telling each other the truth. People are telling the truth to God, admitting to God what's true and right. Then he says, secondly, we need to be people who are learning to put off unrighteous anger. And if you're going to be angry, let it be a righteous anger. But even in a righteous anger, he says, don't let the sun go down on it. Because even a righteous anger can sour. How many have had that happen? Sure. You've held something a little bit too long, you let the sun set on it, and it soured. You became critical. You became angry. You became bitter at somebody or some situation. A righteous anger is good, but you don't let the sun set on it because when you do, you give the devil a foothold. So he says, put off unrighteous anger and put on righteous anger. The third way that a Christian ought to demonstrate a change in his life, he says, Paul says, put off stealing. Don't steal anymore. But that we are to work and to learn how to share, learn how to be gracious and generous people. Because that's after the nature of Christ, who we are after. And then he goes on and he says, the fourth change in the Christian's life should involve his speech. That he should put off unwholesome words and he should speak wholesome words. He should speak wholesome words. Our speech should be transformed along with every other part of our life. Would you agree? I mean, our words, our talk, everything that comes out of our mouth, that ought to be transformed along with everything else. Not only should we be people of truth and people uh, who are exhibiting a righteous anger and people who are... Uh, sharing, but we ought to be people whose speech is transformed also. 
The word unwholesome that Paul uses in verse 29 to describe no longer uh, use or speak unwholesome words, that word in the Greek is the word sapros. It means that which is corrupt, that which is foul. And it was used to describe rotting fruit, rotting vegetables, spoiling food. Now, I don't know how many of you would, it's one of your favorite things to eat rotting fruit. Is it a desirable thing? Well, maybe some people on a fast might be tempted. I don't know. <laughs> but you see, foul and corrupt talk is what he's describing. And the, the reason I emphasize that Greek word is because we don't think unwholesome. Well, unwholesome is kind of a general global term. It really doesn't give us some, some colorful perspective. But when you understand what, how the word in the Greek was used, it was used to describe rotting fruit. That gives you a little bit more color, doesn't it? A little bit, a little bit better picture of what he's talking about. He's saying, don't use corrupt, foul, rotten language. Don't use language that is slanderous, that is uh, critical. Don't use language that is uh, gossip, uh, profanity, vulgarity of any kind, abusive speech off-color jokes or stories, double entendre. Don't, don't speak this way. Because why? It ought to be as repulsive to us as rotting fruit. How many are repulsed by rotting fruit? Yeah. And, and the idea is that that language coming out of our mouths ought to be absolutely repulsive. How many people have ever said something and you thought back later and you said, oh, I'm ashamed that that came out of my mouth? That's right. That's right. As Christians, we must recognize the importance of guarding our tongue. Would you agree with me? We've got to recognize the importance of guarding our tongue. I want you to turn with me to James chapter 3. There's a famous passage on taming the tongue. I just want us to read. James chapter 3, page 1236. Verse 2. Paul says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Why would he say that? If he's, if he's never at fault in anything he says, how can then he be a perfect man? Well, I think what, Paul, what Peter, or James is driving at is that what you say is a reflection of what's in you. We'll see this in another passage in, in Matthew in just a minute. And if you're, you're never at fault of what you're saying, what he's saying then is what's in you must be pretty together. And you must be a perfect man. And we all fall short of that, don't we? But he goes on and he says this. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Now, the bit is a small tool or a small instrument, but it can manage a, a big animal. He says, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Though as massive as ship is, that ship is subject to the direction that that rudder sends it. Again, a, a small member. 
And then he goes on and he says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person and sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. You know who's hanging around just waiting to get to your tongue? Yeah. Our adversary, our enemy, the devil. He'd love nothing better than to get a hold of your tongue and start wagging it. Start making it say things. Start making it express things. Off-color stories. And, it's, it's not, you know, and, and we may think, well, it's nothing really important. Have you ever kind of put somebody down as a joke? I mean, you were kidding and they were kidding. Do you suppose that ever really hurt them? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You say, well, I didn't mean to hurt you. Didn't you? How many people have, have ever said something in a, in, a, in a moment of anger, in the heat of the moment, when you've lost control, have said something and come back and said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. How many have done that? Did you mean it? Yes, you did. You didn't mean to say it. But you meant it. You meant it. Satan can hardly wait to get a hold of your tongue. And he'll set your tongue on fire if you allow it. He says in verse 7, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Do you understand this about your tongue? This is God's perspective. He wants us to understand the significance and the importance of words, what we speak. Proverbs says, the power of life and death is in the tongue, in what we speak. He says, with the tongue we praise the, our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. This should not be. Over in Psalm 141, verse 3, listen to David's prayer. David understood this. He was not a contemporary of James, but he understood the principle. And David prays this prayer. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That's a good prayer, isn't it? That's a great prayer. Now I want you to turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. Verse 34. And see what Jesus has to say. First of all, he says, you brood of vipers. Now he's not speaking to you. He's speaking to the Pharisees. That's the context. He says, How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of what fills us up inside, the mouth speaks. 
The question is, what am I full of? Let's go on. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Underline verse 36. We have to give account for every careless word we've spoken, every corrupt word, every unwholesome word. We're going to have to give account. I've read that verse many times. I studied it when I taught on the book of Matthew. But you know what? Until I was reviewing this material and and preparing for this weekend's message, I'd forgotten all about that verse. And when I reread that passage, boy, that verse just cut right through me. A whole new import. I'm going to have to give account for every careless word I've spoken. I don't know about you, but that, that rattled my cage. That got to me. Now, especially in the state I'm in right now, in the middle of this fast, I'm, I'm, I'm in a weakened state, and I'm very sensitive to the Lord's movement. It's, I, it, I can't easily resist him. I mean, he's having his way in me. He's talking to me. He's doing things in me, and that's wonderful, and I'm rejoicing over it. And in the context of all that, this verse really came home. Give account for all the words that we've spoken. But Jesus is saying, you know, what we speak comes out of what's in us. It comes out of what's in us. And so the question is, what's in us? What are we filled up with? What, what's the overflow that he describes earlier on in verse 34? You know, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced the only way that we're truly going to cleanse our speech, speak uh, appropriate and, and speak wholesome words, is if we fill ourselves with what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, uh, with whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. He says, if there's anything excellent, anything of worthy of praise, think on these things. What's he describing? What's that a description of? Would you say the word of God? I don't think that we're going to be able to guard our speech unless we're filled up with the Word of God. David says in Psalm 119, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. It is possible. I believe that. Store up that which is good. Take that which is good in. Meditate on that which is good. Let that begin to replace that which is bad. So that in those moments when you're off guard, those moments where where impulse takes you, when you're weak, that what comes out of your mouth is not unwholesome, but is rather wholesome. Does that make sense to you? Does that sound like a desirable thing? Yes, it does. Do we have need of that? How many people would say, I have need of that? Sure. Sure, we all do. Well, what should proceed out of our mouth? Let's talk about what are wholesome words. Let's describe words that are wholesome. There's, there's three, three facets to wholesome words, if you will. 
And I want to just describe these quickly to you. First of all, wholesome words are words that are encouraging, encouragingly instructive. They're constructive. They're uplifting. They're words that um, build people up. Even our corrective words, can't they be said in a way that's in an encouraging manner instead in a, in a condemning, condescending, um, uh, destructive kind of a manner? Yes. Uh, so our, first of all, our, our, our words ought to be, the, the, the speech that comes out of our mouth ought to be encouraging speech, uplifting speech. In uh, Proverbs chapter uh, 25, verse 12, let me read this to you. Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. A wise man's rebuke. What, what's a wise man's rebuke like? Well, it's, it's delivered in such a way that it's received as fine gold. It's received in an encouraging, uplifting, constructive kind of a way. Not a denigrating, destructive manner. When people walk away from us, after having conversation with us, after us speaking with them, do they walk away and they say, you know, it was a good thing that I spent time with that person. It was a good thing that, that we talked because I feel better now. I feel strengthened. I feel encouraged. More husbands and wives should be walking away from each other after conversations saying that, right? I want my wife to walk away after we've had a discussion saying, it was good that we talked. I feel better. I feel encouraged. I want my son to walk away after a conversation with either one of us saying, you know, it was good that we talked. I feel good. I feel good about myself. I feel better about the situation. Our conversation should be building one another up. That's a hallmark of wholesome words, wholesome speech. There's a second mark of wholesome speech. And these that are, are, are words ought to be not only encouraging, but appropriate. Appropriate. Paul uses the phrase in verse 29, according to their needs. Speak according to the need. Make your words appropriate. Now we talk to people, the idea is not just that we talk and talk and talk and just chatter and chatter and chatter away. The idea is not that we merely make correct statements that we're merely objective and rational, logical. The idea is that we talk, we work hard, first of all, to listen. <laughs> That's so important, isn't it? To listen. And then to discern. When I'm listening, I'm learning how to discern where this person is, to understand the person and understand the person's needs. And then after I've discerned, then I'm able to speak, and chances are then I'll speak with discernment, and I'll speak words that are appropriate to the building up of that person. Words that will meet the need in that person's life. Can you relate to that? Does that make sense to you? So many times we speak without thinking, without discerning. So many times the other person is talking, and we're thinking what we're going to say, rather than listening, discerning, so that our words, when we do speak, are appropriate words. Let me read to you again from Proverbs chapter 25, this time verse 11. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Isn't that beautiful? 
It's rich. It's a treasure, a word aptly spoken. Listen again to Proverbs 15, 23. Same kind of principle. A man finds joy in giving an apt answer, and how good is a timely word, an appropriate word, a word that's well thought out. So our words ought to be encouraging, our words ought to be appropriate to the need, and thirdly, our words should be gracious. Benefiting, Paul says, those who listen. The word benefiting in that verse 29 in Ephesians in the Greek is the, is the Greek word charis, which is the word we translate as, as grace. And so our words ought to be gracious words. Um, in um, Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes there, Let your conversation be always full of, guess what? Grace. Let your conversation always be full of grace. Luke writes in the fourth chapter of his gospel in verse 22, Speaking of Jesus, when he had come back to Nazareth, just before everybody rejects him, Luke says this, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. The gracious words that came from his lips. So the question we need to ask ourselves, write this down. Is my speech, or the words that come out of my mouth, for the most part, Substantially encouraging, appropriate, and gracious. Are my words, is my speech, encouraging, appropriate, and gracious? Let that be something that you'll think on and meditate on as you contemplate putting off the old and putting on the new. It takes some work. It takes some work. It takes some commitment and some decisions to follow the Lord. Now, a very powerful motivation to put off the old and to put on the new, a very powerful motivation to no longer lie and to tell the truth, to no longer exhibit unrighteous anger versus righteous, to no longer steal but to share, to no longer speak unwholesomely and to speak wholesomely. A very powerful motivation to do these things is recorded in verse 30 that we grieve not the Holy Spirit. For Paul is saying to us that to not do these things, to not put on the new, is to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. To grieve the Holy Spirit of God. When we sin, when we fall short, we're, we're neglectful or we're just disobedient, however, whatever the... the, the the cause. When we sin, what's the, what's the thing that we ought to be most concerned with most? What's, what's that one thing that really ought to really trouble us? Surely we, we violate God's law, don't we? We break God's law. We do something that's wrong. And generally we're concerned about that. Oh, I've done something wrong. But I think there's something even beyond those two things, as, as significant as they are, that ought to really trouble us. And that's this. That when we sin, we offend love. We offend love. That's significant. How many people have ever been in love? How many people have ever demonstrated, have, have reached out, have given love to another person? How many people have ever had 
love given offended? How did it make you feel? Grieved inside? You kind of have a feeling for it, huh? I mean, God teaches us a lot of lessons through our relationships. Do you know that? Are you aware of that? About how we relate to him or don't relate to him? You see, we're in a, we're in a very personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A very personal relationship. And that personal relationship is grounded. It has its basis in God's love. God so loved the world that he gave his most precious possession. He loves us. And when we sin, sure we violate his law. Surely we do something wrong. But I think far more significantly, we offend his love. And that brings grief to his spirit. Much as someone who offends our love would bring grief to our spirit. What happens when you, when you forget that you're in a personal relationship? What happens when you take a personal relationship for granted? Trouble, huh? How many spouses have, have, have noticed this? Yeah, husbands are notorious for this, taking their wives for granted. Wives are notorious for it, taking their husbands for granted. And, and you become neglectful. You, you, you forget. You lose perspective. And that brings grief in those situations. Well, we're in this personal relationship with God. God is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit isn't just a, a, an influence or a power. The Holy Spirit is a person who has influence and who has power. We have to keep reminding ourselves of that reality. You cannot grieve an influence. You can only grieve a person. Isn't that true? You can't hurt a power. You can only really hurt a person. And that's who the Holy Spirit is. He's a person. And he dwells in us. He lives in us. This is, a, this is astounding. I don't know about you, but sometimes I forget that wherever I go, he is. In every environment, he's there. He hears my words. He, he, he sees my thoughts. He watches my actions. Not as a policeman to stand over me with a big stick, but as one who loves me. And there have been times uh, when I've said things, I've done things, that... I look back and I'm embarrassed, even as a Christian. Notwithstanding my non-Christian life, but even as a Christian. And I'm sure you can understand, you can relate. And, and why do we do Because we lose sight of who's in us. We lose sight of who's there. We lose sight of all, how our actions are going to affect him. Then the issue becomes, do I care? Do I really care? Do I love God like I say I do? Wherever we are, he is. I told a story one time, not a story, I gave an example, that in my non-Christian life I did a lot of things that presently I, I would rather forget. And uh, what helps me remember this principle about the Holy Spirit living in me is to think, would I have done those things if my mom had been with me? Probably not. <laughs> I love my mom a lot, and she loves me, and she'll get the tape here, so she'll think this is kind of cute, I guess. But I wouldn't have done what I did. I wouldn't have gone where I'd gone. I wouldn't have said what I'd said if my mom had been with me. 
that kind of helps me make this idea of the Holy Spirit in me tangible in, so that I'm mindful and I practice his presence much more regularly than I do. Because as I practice his presence, then I'm much more apt to want to honor him with my behavior and with my life and so forth rather than bring him grief. Can anybody relate to that? A couple of you? Great. Now, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Three ways, very simply, that we grieve the Holy Spirit. The first way is by our failure to recognize his presence within. By our failure to recognize his presence within. Have any of you ever been blatantly, obviously ignored by somebody? Oh, boy. Is that one of your favorite things? No, it's not, is it? I mean, it is infuriatingly insulting, isn't it? I mean, to walk into a room, to be in a, in a group of people, and have somebody greet everybody else except you, and obviously they've seen you, but they flat out ignored you. Oh, what does that do to you? I talked with a woman not too long ago who was at a, her family was all gathered together, and they were all, the whole family was together, and, and, uh, uh, one of the other sister-in-laws in the family came into this meeting and um, arrived a little bit late, and everyone was all gathered, and, and the, the, the late arrivee uh, went around and said hello to every single person, gushed over every single person except this one lady, and obviously blatantly ignored her. And everybody saw it. But this one person who was ignored felt terribly terribly, not only insulted, but grieved down deep inside. Would you feel grieved over that? Absolutely. How do you, feel, do you think the Holy Spirit feels when we uh, fail to recognize his presence within us moment by moment? You say, well, that's impossible. No, it's not. It's a lot more possible than I think we, we realize to practice his presence regularly. The second way we grieve the Holy Spirit is by living in an unholy manner. Quite simply, living according to the flesh. Not putting off the old and not putting on the new. That, only, that does, not only has to do with our activities, but it also has to do with what's in us. What's in us. Put away those uh, godless motives and those godless goals and perspectives and put on godly goals and perspectives. So if we live in an unholy manner, according to the flesh, that grieves the Holy Spirit. The third way is a failure to respond to his promptings. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, Paul speaks of being led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God leads us. He prompts us. He speaks to us. He moves in us. Have you ever been prompted? You've been doing something, maybe watching television, all of a sudden the thought comes in, why don't you read your Bible for a little while? Did that ever happen? Yeah. Or maybe you're off just kind of doing something and, and a thought comes across to pray for somebody or pray for some situation. Or maybe you're doing something you ought not to do and there's a prompting that says, don't do that, do this. You understand what I'm talking about? The Holy Spirit leads us. The Holy Spirit prompts us. Or maybe, uh, maybe you're, you're standing in line at the bank and the Holy Spirit says, speak to that person in front of you. I prepared their heart. Promptings, leading by the Holy Spirit, and a failure to respond to his promptings, again, ultimately leads to, I believe, a grieving of the Spirit of God. A grieving of the Spirit of God. 
Now, why should we not grieve the Holy Spirit? Why should we not grieve the Holy Spirit? Now, someone is going to say, well, that's obvious. It's obvious we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, if it's so obvious, why do we do it with such regularity? Why should we not grieve the Holy Spirit? Two reasons. The first one. First of all, because who he is. <laughs> Quite simply, because of who he is. Who is he? He's God. He's God, the third person of the Trinity. That's who he is. We ought to all give him honor. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks. And their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we need to honor him, not grieve him. Because in, in grieving him, our, our thinking is going to become futile and our hearts are going to be darkened. So first of all, because of who he is and what he's done in us. What has he done in us? Well, first of all, he's condescended to live in us. He's condescended. He's taken upon himself the willingness to come and live in this humble body. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Not only that, but he is God's personal mark of authenticity on us to guarantee our salvation. He is the seal. He is the guarantor of our salvation. We're sealed in the Spirit for the day of redemption, Paul says. Beloved, how can we grieve the one who is our helper? How can we grieve the one who is our teacher? How can we grieve the one who is our comforter? How can we grieve the one who is our advocate? How can we grieve the one who is the divine live-in, if you will, the guarantor of our salvation? How can we? And yet we do. There's a second reason we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's because by grieving him, that will ultimately lead to, now be careful, listen to this closely, lead to the loss of the gracious manifestations of his presence. It will lead to the loss of the gracious manifestations of his presence. You won't lose him, but you'll lose a sense of him. Do you remember King Saul and King David in the Old Testament? King Saul, the Spirit of God was mightily upon him. He was the first king of Israel. And God empowered him by his Holy Spirit in a mighty way. But Saul soon disobeyed God. He soon didn't trust God. And the Lord removed his spirit from Saul. And Saul ultimately died. David observed that whole process. And so later on in David's history, in his life, after he had sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered, that uh, double uh, grievous event, in his prayer, after he's confronted over his sin, in his prayer in Psalm 51, he cries out, remembering that God had taken the spirit from Saul, he cries out, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because he saw Saul's end. And he prayed, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Well, what happens to us when we grieve the Holy Spirit, when we sin, God doesn't take his spirit from us. But the Spirit himself removes 
the gracious manifestations of his presence in us. Let me explain to you what that means. You'll not have a sense of God's love to you. Oh, you'll know by faith. The Bible says God loves me and you'll stand by faith. Wonderful. But you'll not have a sense of God's love. Isn't it nice when someone says, I love you, and you want to believe they mean it? But it's even nicer when you have a sense of that love, right? When you're comforted, you really believe that that love is real. It's tangible to you. But if you grieve the Holy Spirit, you'll not have a sense of that love. You'll not experience the joy of salvation. And there's a great joy that is attendant to salvation. You'll have no assurance, no sense of certainty. You'll not be able to experience the peace of God that that transcends all understanding. You'll not be able to say this, a quote with Paul, that the Spirit testifies to my spirit that I am a child of God. You'll not be able to say that with any kind of confidence because there'll be no tangible assurance in you because the Holy Spirit has removed those gracious manifestations. You'll not be lost, but you'll sure feel like it. You'll feel empty. You'll feel overwhelmed because of the grief of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will leave you to your own fleshly power. He'll leave you to your own fleshly power, and Satan will take advantage of that state, and he will begin an assault that will absolutely devastate you. He'll assault you physically. He'll assault you mentally. He'll assault you emotionally. Not a very exciting prospect, is it? You say, well, why would God do that? Why would God leave me without his power? So that you'd come to your senses. So that you'd come to your senses and you'd return home. I love the passage in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. The son is gone. He's bearing the fruit of his choices. And then right towards the end, Luke records, and he came to his senses and he realized that he had sinned and he returned home and he'd asked for forgiveness. Beloved, when we persist in sin, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit removes the manifestations of his presence. He leaves us to our own fleshly resources so that we'd come to our senses. In a very real sense, he turns us over to the assault of the devil. Not a very advantageous position to be in. You see, how could he love us if he does? He loves us. How many parents have had to discipline their children because they love them? You understand what it's all about? God loves you. He wants to bless you. He's in the blessing business. But as long as we are recalcitrant children, we can't receive his blessings. Somehow he's got to get us to turn around so we can receive his blessings. There's a verse over in 1 John. I want you to look at this with me. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. 1 John 5, 18. I want you to underline this verse also. John writes a very interesting thing. He says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now he's saying he doesn't 
It's not that this person is sinless perfectly. But he doesn't go off living that same way. He's, he's a person who is putting off the old and putting on the new. He doesn't continue in the same lifestyle. He's adopting a whole new lifestyle. The person born of God does not continue to sin. And the one who, has, who was born of God, I was referring to Jesus there, the one who was born of God keeps him safe. And the evil one does not touch him. Beloved, if we're, gonna, if we're not putting off the old and putting on the new, it results in a grieving of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to grieve him. We don't want to grieve his love. And we always want to be in a position and a posture where we have the assurance of God's love, the joy of our salvation, his peace, and his protection. Amen? So watch what you say. Watch how you live. Not after the letter of the law, but after the Spirit. Live in the Spirit because you love the Lord and because you're in a loving, personal relationship and you wouldn't think of violating that relationship. And when you do, go to Him and say, Papa, Papa, I blew it. I blew it. Acknowledge where you are. Admit where you are. Let Him forgive you. Receive His forgiveness with thanksgiving. Let Him cleanse you. Say thank you and get on with serving Him. Amen? Let's pray.